morning, Glory America. It's Hugh Hewitt from the ReliefFactor.com studios on the West Coast. I hope you've had a great week. It's Friday. That music means it's the last radio hour of the week, which we always give over to the Hillsdale Dialogue, where we go up to 30,000 feet or look back 5,000 years or something like that. We always go big, and without apology, we go high. This week, not with Dr. Larry on the president of Hillsdale College. He's off cruising with the Hillsdale College group, but with Professor Adam Carrington, who is a professor. He teaches constitutional history and constitutional law at Hillsdale. Professor, good morning. Good to have you on the program with us. Great to be with you, too, Hugh. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu, and all things on the Hugh for Hillsdale dialogues are at hughforhillsdale.com. How long have you been at Hillsdale, Professor Carrington? I'm about to start my fifth year, so I'm, I'm on the younger side of, of the faculty here, but uh, uh, very happy to, to have been here the years that I've been. Now, talk, tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you do your undergraduate work? See, I did my undergraduate at a small school in Ohio called Ashland University, although if anyone's heard of the John M. Ashbrook Center for Public Affairs, a great institution there, uh, I was an Ashbrook scholar. And then I went on to do my graduate work, master's and Ph.D. at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. Well, I gave the commencement at Ashland last year, and I've known Ashland forever. I went to debate camp there long before you were a sparkle in your parents' eyes back in the 70s. I know Ashland very well, so it's a great school. Baylor, Ph.D. Okay, so how did you pick constitutional history? Why did you want to do this? Not, not many non-lawyers like this field. That's true. And I actually went to graduate school wanting to just do more generically American political thought. And I, I was in a class with, with a good teacher down at Baylor uh, named David Nichols. And, and he really showed that a lot of the great questions of American political thought, what is liberty, what is justice, what is equality, in addition to the great questions of structure, separation of powers and federalism, really come out in judicial decisions. He actually compared them to dialogues like Plato's Republic. And he wasn't saying they're as good as that, but that he was saying that these are instances where a good uh, majority and a good dissent really force out of each other a good conversation about the big principles and the big issues. And I really came to fall in love with, fall in love with that, uh, the way that judges and lawyers are able to talk about justice and the law with each other in that kind of context and uh, uh, really took hold in grad school and has continued up to now. And not just horizontally. I try to explain to my law students each year, the conversation between majority and dissent is a horizontal conversation, but there's a vertical conversation over the years as cases are revisited and turned over. Uh, Most recently, for example, in campaign finance, we had McConnell versus uh, FEC for a number of years, and then Citizens United came along. So you had majority and dissent over many years in campaign finance finally resolving itself in the majority of Citizens United saying that money is speech and that we have to get away from this, and corporations are not different from individuals, and you cannot... Uh, benefit one set of corporations like the New York Times and not another like the Koch brothers, that everybody has to have the same right. And that took a lot of conversation, a lot of dialectic, both horizontally and vertically to get there. Right. It means that words matter when you actually are trying to conduct politics like human beings and that uh, when you're trying to use the law like human beings. And therefore, why write a dissent? Why write even a concurrence? Because you are making an argument not just to your fellow colleagues but to future generations that you thought you were just and that 
People will not just work by force. They'll not just work by might. They'll work by persuasion and that we actually speak with each other, and that's essential to what makes us political. And I think that the court at its best uh, really does showcase that, and lawyers at their best really showcase that aspect of, of human politics that really goes all the way back to Aristotle. It can also, though, go very, very badly. I've been listening to uh, Battle Cry of Freedom, the James McPherson Pulitzer Prize winning 1989 history of the Civil War era. And I just got done listening to his recap of Dred Scott and how Tawney really botched that case. And what a disaster it was that the court attempted to settle that which could not be settled, attempted to undo the Missouri Compromise, attempted to undo the 1820 Compromise, attempted to rewrite the history of the framing, indeed, the, of Jeffersonian theory and the Declaration of Independence, and it was a disaster. And sometimes you wonder if the court ever learned that it was a disaster, because Roe's a disaster. And I mean, lots of things are disasters over the years. My, my father told me he had a history teacher in, in high school that said that, uh, and I don't know where this teacher got it, man learns from history that man doesn't learn from history. <laughs> That's and I good. think that that, that, is, that is apropos. Uh, I, and not that the court never learns, but, but human nature stays the same, so we're prone to make similar mistakes. And I, I think you're right with Dred Scott that in some ways it's tragic because I think Tawney genuinely thought he at the court was in the were the only ones in a position to fix this issue of slavery without war, and in many ways brought help to bring on the war, help to speed up. I think it's 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 uh, it's coming about. And I think the other thing you point out is right that it was tragic for the power and the and the role of the court because in many ways Tawney is just a really bad originalist. Yes. Uh, he, uh, you know, a lot of people bash originalism or textualism, these, these approaches today by pointing to Dred Scott, because Tawney says, well, we'll just, we just have to follow what the founders thought, regardless of what we think. But I think if you look at Lincoln's critique of it, uh, of that opinion, if you look at the dissents in that case's critique of it, that just because you claim you're doing originalism or textualism doesn't mean you're doing it well, and we should only judge it by it being done well, which means I think it's, it's bad to judge it by the way he did it, because there's was so much evidence to show that he was stretching what the founders thought or ignoring things the founders thought to try to get to the outcome that he was wanting. And the war came. To quote uh, Lincoln's second inaugural, after Dred Scott, and then the war came. What was interesting to me about that, the way it leads us into Kavanaugh, is lack of judicial humility. And when you have lack of judicial humility, you have someone like Tawney in the Dred Scott case, which brings on the Civil War, going far beyond what he had to do. He could have just dismissed the case for lack of jurisdiction. That's all he had to do. And I've taught people, but instead, ambitious judges are a bane. They, they want to do too much, and they're not supposed to do that much. And I believe in Brett Kavanaugh, we will have, as is the chief, a judicially modest judge. Talk to me about that a little bit, Adam Carrington. Yes, and I think that that is a, a very good point, that you want judges and really legislators and executives to stay in their lanes. The Constitution creates three lanes and they need to stay in the judicial one. And I think that the, the, not just Dred Scott, but much of the 20th century showed a, a inability of the courts or an unwillingness of the courts to do so. And I think with Kavanaugh, I think especially being raised in the legal tradition that he's been raised in, he's one of the justices now, he and Gorsuch, that have really truly 
been brought up in the conservative legal community in the shadow of Scalia, in the shadow of the Federalist Society. And I think this idea of the law really does point back to there are particular things judges can and should do. They should not be uh, uh, political philosophers. They should not be legislators. They should be people who take the law as it is and applies it to particular cases and controversies. And I think you see in Kavanaugh in the way he operates someone who is willing to stay within those confines. And that means he'll, he'll make, they'll make some pretty big pronouncements. But those big pronouncements, I think, will be within the judicial power itself and not, be try, not try to cure all the social ills and slay every uh, socially unjust monster, however real or perceived, that occurs in American society. I'm talking with Professor Adam Carrington of Hillsdale College. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue. We do this once a week, and we've been spending a lot of time focused on the court because we are approaching one of the crucial moments in American constitutional history. And uh, we'll come back after the break and continue to talk about that because um, uh, we've got to get set up for what's going to happen to Kavanaugh in two weeks. So stay tuned. However, the president of the United States has tweeted. I did not, in caps, know of the meeting with my son, Don Jr., Sounds to me like someone is trying to make up stories in order to get himself out of an unrelated jam. Perens, taxi cabs may be closed, Perens. He even retained Bill and Crooked Hillary's lawyer. Gee, I wonder if they helped him make the choice. This is a diversion from the Supreme Court, Adam Carrington. The president will not let us stay on subject, will he? No, he will not. Well, at least if the subject's not him. Yeah, that, that is, we had all the buildup. We, we should be focused exclusively on Brett Kavanaugh because we are going into the, into the hearings. When we come back, we'll talk some more about that because, indeed, Brett Kavanaugh's wife is now a subject of the New York Times inquiry. It's going to be that kind of a summer, America. Stay tuned. I'll be right back with Adam Carrington as the Hillsdale Dialogue rolls along. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. In the ReliefFactor.com West Coast studio, it is the Hillsdale Dialogue Weekly. We, once a week, the last radio hour of the week, I join with Dr. Larry Arn and one of his colleagues this week, Professor Adam Carrington of Hillsdale College, in a conversation about something big and important, not just the breaking news. This week, like last, we are focused, as we were last week with Professor Marino, this week with Professor Carrington, on the looming debate over whether or not Brett Kavanaugh ought to take his seat next to eight other justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, Professor Carrington, what was your reaction to the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh? Well, like you, uh, I was a little bit of a homer for 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 Kethledge, and this, but that was more because uh, being here in Michigan and him being the first uh, Michigan appointee in I think it would have been seventy, eighty years would have been been neat. But I think it was a issue more of uh, among a question among betters. I think that. Kavanaugh was, in many ways, even more qualified. He uh, was a person who has had lots of judicial experience, whose approach to the bench and everything I've seen shows a great mind and a great approach to handling the text of the Constitution and the text of statutes. So even though being, a, being in Michigan, I kind of liked Kethledge, uh, I really thought that any of the ones that that got to the last couple would have been good picks, and it really was just showing how strong the bench was 
that the president had to choose from. Now, the the hearings will get underway and they will have a million pages of documents. And my very cynical internal clock says it doesn't make a lick of difference. Everyone has already decided whether they are going to vote for Kavanaugh or not. Do you agree with me? Unless there's something I know Dr. Moreno said last week, unless there is something we really don't know about. And I think Kavanaugh, in many ways, is a very well-known entity I don't see that being the case. I see that there might be a lot of bark to opposition to him, but I just don't see where there's going to be any bite. That's my assessment. And when I read that the New York Times and others, and I've read this at Newsmax, which is fairly reliable on this stuff, is trying to FOIA Mrs. Kavanaugh's public records as a town manager, that tells me that the 300 opinions he has written by by omission, the fact that they can't attack a particular opinion or set of opinions tells me that they're very good opinions. That's my reasoning. And, and yours, Adam Carrington? I think so. And I think that it also might just be that they, they, they're asking what could really derail this among people who aren't paying as much attention. And is there something salacious they could look up since they're obviously isn't in in these opinions. It really is something where even I've seen people who oppose him have had to admit that these are well-written, they're well-reasoned, they're well within how a judge should act and conduct himself before the law. So I think this this is a bit grasping at straws. One of the first things I noticed is that they had gone to find his teacher evaluations or teacher evals. I get these every year, and they're on a bell curve, right? Some people love you. Some people don't like you. Not surprisingly, they typically match the uh, the grade curve. In law school, there's an obligatory grade curve because the ABA monitors these sorts of things. And the people who don't do well don't like the course, and the people who sca- sail through do. But it told me as well, as with the FOIA request on his wife, if they're going to teacher evals, they're really desperate, Adam. Yes, and I would even say the the uh, the information, the words that they asked to to hear about his wife. You know, when does the word conservative or abortion or gay or federalist come up? Uh, shows the desperation, but I think it also maybe even shows a deeper question or a deeper issue, which is, you know, uh, um, the question of partisanship in the law. I think that. Uh, you see a lot of people who oppose Kavanaugh, well, I should maybe start with a lot of people that support Kavanaugh saying, we just want someone who's going to apply the law as written and intended. And others uh, opposing him saying, we want to know how he's going to decide on abortion, on gay marriage, on guns, on these things. And and in some ways you could say that's just partisanship, but I think the, 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 the divide is even deeper, that wanting to know this information shows in some ways that I think opponents of Kavanaugh really don't believe there is a distinction between legislative and judicial power in the Constitution. The, uh, uh, the all judges do is impose their own views on the electorate at a different point than Congress does. They do view that that way, and we'll come back to discuss that. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. My guest, Adam Carrington, professor at Hillsdale College. We're talking about the Kavanaugh hearings at Loom. Stay tuned. The GDP number also will be along, and then we'll bring it to you live on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening to Hugh Hewitt Show. The GDP number is in. 4.1% growth is back in America. 4. 
4.1% growth. Very healthy. Happy to have that. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway once a week in the last radio hour of the week. I'm joined either by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues today, Professor Adam Carrington, to talk about one of the big issues. And we have a Supreme Court vacancy, and there really is no bigger issue in the maintenance of constitutional freedom than the men and women who preside over the nine uh, chairs, who sit in the nine chairs that preside over the evolution of the Constitution or the interpretation of it. Adam Carrington, let's assume for a moment, I've got a new audience in Lafayette, for example. They've not heard any of the Hillsdale Dialogues dating back to 2013. They may not know that they can get in Primus for free at hillsdale.edu. They may not know that there are amazing free courses at hillsdale.edu. And every conversation I've had with anyone from Hillsdale during this dialogue dating back to 2013 are all collected at HughForHillsdale.com, all the way back to Homer. But let's assume that they don't know much about the Supreme Court. Uh, give them a little primer, would you, on what Article Three was intended to accomplish and what Hamilton 78 tells us about it? Right. Uh, and I think that's a re- obviously a great place to start uh, with the Constitution. And I think a thing to keep in mind is that the first three articles of the Constitution don't begin by creating a branch. They begin by asserting a distinct power. They begin by saying the legislative power is given, the executive power is given, the judicial power is given, saying that these are different from each other, and then create a branch meant to fulfill that power in the best way it can. And I think Article 3 says that the particular judicial power is vested in a Supreme Court and and lower courts created by Congress. And I think a thing to keep in mind with understanding, well, how is that power distinct, is to go to Federalist 78, which I do think Marbury v. Madison in some ways uh, 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 mimics on certain things. But in Federalist 78, Hamilton really says that the, the role of a court is to take a law that already exists and to uh, deal with a problem in the law. And that problem in the law is people don't always agree on how it should apply to a particular circumstance. Uh, was this really fraud? Was this really breaking a contract or not, for example? And what uh, the courts do is when there's a dispute over how the law should rule us, whether it's the Constitution or statute, the, uh, the, the courts say what the law is in that instance by applying it and saying this person has the better reading of the law than this other person. And I think Federalist 78 says that in doing so, um, what the judges are doing is they're not ex- asserting their will. That's what the legislative branch does. They, create, they assert their will by creating laws. They practice what's called merely judgment. They take the existing law and apply it to a particular dispute, not using what they wish would happen, but trying to say how the law should govern us in that particular instance. And this is the practice that has evolved over uh, time since 1789, slowly at first gathering acceleration as the years went by and the decades went by and the doctrine of incorporation developed after the Civil War amendments. It has accelerated to now the court is ubiquitous in our lives. And there's an almost dramatic element of building to the end of June that is not what the framers had in mind, but it is now an inevitable part. And judges have become much more public, much more um, uh, personalities in our lives. And when we look back and talk about great justices, we now have to measure those who are coming. And this is relatively new to make judges into celebrities. When Justice Scalia 
with Judge Scalia. I did some cases for him when I clerked in the D.C. Circuit. My judge was was uh, ill. And I got cases from then Judge Ginsburg and then Judge Bork and then Judge Scalia and Judge Starr and Judge Skelly. Right? Nobody knew who they were. Right. That this was they were just anonymous judges. And it was a good thing for a law student to get a clerkship and would help with your career. But you did your work and you never thought you were working for a superstar. That's all changed now. Yes, the fact that there is a movie about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, not just the documentary, but a a, a, uh, a drama film coming out later this year is pretty unheard of. I think there was one about Oliver Wendell Holmes 50, 60, 70 years ago, and, and the thought that they would become pop culture icons is, is quite strange. And I think that's really two things happening at the same time. One is in the judiciary itself, how much uh, we have reduced all of our debates to constitutional questions. Everything that people oppose now must be unconstitutional. Scalia had a stamp, allegedly, that he, he wanted to stamp on things that said stupid but constitutional. We don't have that, uh, that belief anymore. And I think what that's done is that's only encouraged judges themselves to expand what they think the, 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 their power is by declaring anything they don't like unconstitutional, anything they like constitutional. I would say the other bigger thing is how much, how just politicized everything is. Why are judges celebrities? Because um, politics has become so essential to so many people. And, and of course, it's important that we be citizens, but it's become everything to some people. And therefore, I think that the role of politics, not just the judiciary in our lives, has maybe taken an outsized element, and we've forgotten that as human beings, uh, big parts of ourselves are being parts of families, churches, bowling leagues, and things like that. Let's take a look at some of the judges come before. Uh, this was suggested by our friends at, at Hillsdale that there are Hall of Fames among justices and Hall of Shames. We talked about Tawny, and I remember a, a great Scalia dissent in which he reflects upon the portrait of Tawny at Harvard Law and how grim he looks, how he knows in this portrait that he has sent the, the Union off to war uh, in many respects and to a, a terrible conflict, 600,000 dead. But we do have these judges, and there are, there are a couple hundred, maybe not a couple hundred, like, I don't know how many, maybe 150. Uh, who do you think are the models that we ought to hold up, and who do we think ought never to be what we look for in a judge? Yeah, that's a great question, because even if we don't want to make them icons, we should seek to learn from history like we talked about before. And I think uh, a, pl- a good place to start is with John Marshall, uh, the first great chief justice, who, uh, while not perfect, I think in many ways established that uh, a number of important points, that we should look to the text, that we should look to what the original framers meant in that text, and that we should understand that there are great principles of justice underlying that text and that he was a great and lively writer, which we, we often don't have on the, on the, on the bench, in, expo- in, in expositing these principles and making this approach. I think Joseph Story is another great uh, uh, early justice. Uh, you know, I'm partial to a man named Justice Stephen Field that I, that I wrote my dissertation in a book on. Oh, did you really? Reconstruction huh. era. Yeah, that came out about a year ago, if I can put a plug in. Uh, and, uh, What's the name of liberty. it? What's the it's, name? It's um, Justice uh, Stephen Fields' uh, um, constitutional cooperative Constitution of Liberty. Uh, how the Constitution uh, cooperated in uh, uh, 
propelling government to regulate to protect rights, but also limiting government to keep it from violating rights, and how that was a, a, a fuller view of liberty than those who are purely anti or pro-government in, in regulatory uh, uh, instances. So, uh, you know, I think he was uh, a, a fine justice. I think that uh, Scalia, certainly, and I think the thing with Scalia is how he brought back the text and the original meaning when uh, before that wasn't the case. Some of the Hall of Shame, you know, I do think Tawny should be in there. I think, you know, this is much more controversial, but I think even if you agree with some of the outcomes, some of the uh, mid to later 20th century justices like Earl Warren and Brennan, even if you agree with their outcomes, some of their approaches to the Constitution, to how to get there, I think uh, were very problematic for the role of judges staying within their lanes, as we were talking about. Well, I, I will agree with you on the Warren Court when it comes to example of school prayer and the Establishment Clause distortion that they came up with. However, had they not brought the hammer, segregation would never have been shattered. I don't think we would have gotten the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was the essential remedying of the perversion of the 14th Amendment. Uh, The 14th Amendment ought to have made segregation unconstitutional. It didn't because of bad Supreme Court decisions in Plessy versus Ferguson. And so that had to be shattered and Warren and Brennan went about the shattering. That is to their everlasting credit. I, I agree, and that's uh, that's partly why I said the outcome. Can, you can sometimes agree with the outcome and maybe not how they got there. I really wish that the Warren court had picked up Justice John Marshall Harlan's dissent yes. Plessy and leaned harder on it, because yes. I think it was the right outcome. But the way they based it, they, they, they really dismissed the text of the Constitution very quickly. They, they sort of rolled over it and moved to psychological studies to support the downfall of segregation. And I, and I really think that uh, that is some, that's, that's not as strong a footing as it could have been. So I absolutely agree with the outcome. I really wish that they had taken the Plessy v. Ferguson dissent, that the Constitution is colorblind, that there is a right to liberty involved in the government not treating people differently on an arbitrary issue like the color of one's skin, and that that would have even been a stronger ground to to strike at the heart of segregation. In fact, I think it would have struck harder at the heart of segregation than even the reasoning that they used. We're, we're going to get there, by the way, in this next court with uh, Justice Kavanaugh. We will end, finally, the use of racial discrimination in the awarding of benefits or the imposition of penalties because we will have five justices who are... It will be our 114th justice, by the way. 114 men and women have served in that job prior to this. And I've got to say, right before we go to break, uh, Adam uh, Carrington, I think the chief is going to be a great chief justice in history in on the terms of John Marshall, because he's going to be there that long. He has already written things like the concurrence in Citizens United. And I believe Sibelius is going to be viewed as a Marbury v. Madison like elegant threading of a needle between institutional preservation and the accomplishment of great constitutional goals like the spending clause. Uh, the, the the interstate commerce clause, but he, you know, conservatives hate him because of the outcome. But I just thought it was so elegant. Uh, he's a friend. Thirty seconds to you on that. Wow, uh, I do think in general he has been a, a a very good chief justice. I'm not sure if he wasn't a little too clever by half. History, I guess, we'll have to judge on the Sibelius decision because I think he tried to rewrite the statute. That's the thing I just don't 
buy on that. Okay, we'll that come back says, after the break. Yeah. And get, during the break, think about this. You're supposed to uphold every statute that you can. You know that, judicial modesty. But I want everyone to stay tuned. We'll come back with Adam Carrington in a moment. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. Hillsdale.edu for all things Hillsdale. All of our conversations dating back to 2013 are collected at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Professor Adam Carrington, who teaches the history of the Constitution and constitutional law at Hillsdale, is my guest today. I want to finish by, by talking about Brett Kavanaugh and the kind of things you think he will face, Professor Carrington, and the kind of conversations you hope to hear. I always have high hopes for these because the American people could learn so much from these conversations, but they end up inevitably being like Al Franken made a fool out of himself with Neil Gorsuch. And I have no doubt that some of the Democrats will make fools out of themselves again, but it will be the job of Brett Kavanaugh not to point that out. Right. And I think that the, the questions that are, are pertinent really stem from some of the conversations we've already had this hour. I, I would really base any good question off uh, one. Uh, what is the judicial power? What do you understand it to be? What makes a good judge? And to then even your questions about approaches to particular lines of constitutional law, particular lines of procedure, I think all of that should just come out of what makes a good judge and what makes a good judge is who follows the judicial power correctly. But you're right. There will be lots of, are you going to rule the way I would vote if I were voting for a bill in the Senate? Are you going to um, do you know this embarrassing thing that we try to dig up about your past drinking habits in college that I know that, that's come out? Uh, that's where I think it's going to really run off the rails and not be the kind of conversation that we should be having and not show proper respect for the Senate as an institution or the court as an institution, which both should be uh, respected deeply in this process. Now, what I'd love to, to get you to comment on is whether or not in the course of this, he ought to be taking particular issues like Roe v. Wade and talking about their jurisprudential history or whether he ought to leave them completely alone. Because I think you can do the former without doing uh, the complete dodge and provide some answers and some temperament issues. But on the other hand, the safest bet is to pull the Ruth Bader Ginsburg precedent out and say, I don't discuss anything that might come before the court. What's your advice? Politically, I would say keep it as close to the vest as possible. But I think that uh, uh, if where possible, I think he should be at least willing to engage in constitutional reasoning and talking about what, um, what, what lines of thinking are most closely related to the original Constitution and to the text itself. But I also think he really does genuinely need to make sure he doesn't say exactly how he would decide a case that hasn't come up yet. But the fact is, I think I've seen judges do it well. I've seen uh, uh, you know, Scalia and others make speeches while Supreme Court judges that I think were able to toe that line. So I hope it's an engaging conversation at the same time. I would err on the side of caution, not because not because that's what should be done in a perfect world, but probably what needs to be done in this world. If you were a senator, what would you ask him? I would ask him how he under, how he would explain to a fellow citizen Article Three of the Constitution's vesting of the judicial power. Going well, that is excellent. Oh, that is excellent because that would that would engage him in. Kind of first principles of, of judicial theory. 
And, be, and, and to do so, I always make my law students explain it like you were explaining it to a smart seventh grader. Because the Constitution is intended to be read by farmers and by artisans and by people at the framing gathered in uh, ratification conventions who were not constitutional scholars. They were supposed to be able to read and debate this thing. This is a government of the people, by the people, for the people. It's founding or its fundamental document should be understandable by the people. And I think whatever Kavanaugh says in relation to that question would then define the lines of questioning I want to go from there. Now, given that you wrote about Justice Field and given that's 100 years ago, I guess he was working 100 years ago, maybe not quite that, but 120 years ago. Do you think it's fair to ask people like Brett Kavanaugh? So what do you think of Justice Stephen Field? Is that a fair question? Or, you know, they don't murder board that kind of stuff. I think it's perfectly uh, uh, legitimate to ask what he thinks of past justices, and that might be a way for him to not explicitly say what, how he'd decide a case, but actually see whose reasoning he respects and what precedent he respects in the past. You know, I've, I've been reading Field during the break because I don't know much about Justice Field other than he's a slaughterhouse guy, and it turns out he's a Lincoln appointee and a Californian. Is that why you picked him? Well, and a union Democrat, uh, nonetheless, uh, in, in addition. No, I, I picked him because I thought he was particularly clear, thoughtful. He integrated first principles of the Declaration of Independence without uh, uh, leaving aside the text itself of the Constitution and that he had something to say to our contemporary politics on the meaning of liberty. Uh, what is the title of the book again, Adam Carrington? It is, um, it is Justice Stephen Field's Cooperative Constitution of Liberty, uh, Liberty in Full, is what I subtitled it. Liberty in Full. How interesting. We will. I've just pulled it up on Amazon. I'm about to tweet it out. I appreciate your joining me this morning. Professor Carrington, come back again. All the Hillsdale Dialogues are collected at HughForHillsdale.com. Go there or go to Hillsdale.edu. 